Hello, and welcome to Making Sense of Money, a podcast dedicated to talking about financial topics in a fun and understandable format. I hope this is fun. Is this fun? <laughs> Depends on the day, right? I am one of your hosts, Andrea Pellegrini. And I'm Nikki Giancola Shanks. Um, on our last episode, we talked about the importance of having a checking account and savings account at either a bank or credit union. And we also talked about what it means to be unbanked or underbanked and how it can have ripple effects on your life. So if you missed it, make sure to check it out on Apple Podcasts or Google Play. Today, we're going to be discussing different aspects of fintech, everything from mobile banking to Bitcoin. We're going to also be joined today by Jake Hamilton. Jake will be joining us from time to time during this podcast series. So Jake, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit? Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Jake Hamilton. Uh, like Nikki, I also work at the Illinois Division of Banking. I work for uh, Chase Raywinkle, who was on the podcast last week. And uh, I do a lot of research for the division on you know various topics, whether it's legislative research or anything really they need me to. But uh, specifically, I've done a lot of research for the division on fintech projects and cryptocurrency stuff. We're going to be working on a report that's going to be released later this year uh, on the banking applications of blockchain technology. So I've learned a lot since I started researching on it, and I'm uh, excited to share that with everybody. Now, Jake, I have to ask this. Are you any relation to Alexander Hamilton? (laughs) No, I am not. Uh, I think my family's looked into that before, but not that I know of. There's no relation there, so... Sorry I thought for maybe banking was in the genetics there and it just drew you to IDFPR. <laughs> no, that would be a great story. But uh, no, it's, it's not. Yeah. That's okay. We're still very glad that you're here and that you have some expertise in fintech. Um, well, I think I'm, I'm you, happy to be here too. Fabulous. So I, we've been throwing around the word fintech a little bit. Maybe we should explain what that means. Fintech or financial technology can be used to describe a whole slew of different types of services and products meant to assist in money management. Some fintech you may be most familiar with includes things like digital or mobile banking, obviously, peer-to-peer, things like Venmo or PayPal, sometimes called P2P, Bitcoin or blockchain, and apps for investing or consumer shopping. Nikki or Jake, or both of you, I had a question while I was going through my notes. What do you think the earliest form of financial technology was that you used? So I think most likely it was actually PayPal. Um, And I can't, I'm hesitant only because I can't remember if like I, I already had like my mobile banking set up and then use PayPal. But I think if I did, it was definitely when I was younger and not as into doing as much things with my account and setting up different, you know, automatic bill pays and things like that. So I think that really my first one was probably PayPal. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think back. I think probably the first fintech tech not like fintech that i would have used would have been like when mobile banking started 
getting bigger, I think when I was in college, maybe not mobile banking, but online banking for sure. I remember, uh, I had an account at the U of I credit union and, uh, I was like able to log on, see my checking and savings. And, uh, you know, that was definitely big because before that I never hardly even checked it. You know, (laughs) it's just in high school money went in, sometimes it went out, but being able to log on and see that I think was the first time I used it. And then, you know, Chase had like an app that I used on my phone in college and stuff like that. You could check it. So I think probably mobile or online banking was the first fintech that I used. Yeah. I probably used PayPal. And I even remember before PayPal was really popular, buying something online, I had to go get a cashier's check or a money order because I was resistant to sign up for PayPal and give them my banking information because I didn't have a credit card at the time. I was so young. That's the most memorable one. I probably also used online banking before I signed up for PayPal. So I'd be more familiar with it, but I don't remember it as much. (laughs) So um, we'll be talking about a few of these examples of financial technology, but the things that I mentioned isn't a very long list. There's a lot of new technologies that pop up all the time, uh, which just proves how important personal finance is as a topic that requires lifetime learning, which is why we're doing a podcast. So Nikki, do you want to talk a little bit more about what you've heard about fintech? Of course. So one thing, if you look up fintech, as Andrea mentioned, is there's a lot about with fintech, the word disruptor or disruption is associated with it. Um, I feel like that's the case for a lot of different new technology in general. And it's an entire subset of people talking about how these different companies and this different technology shakes things up in a variety of ways. And really when it comes to FinTech, it talks about how it kind of shakes up the financial services aspect. One thing, actually, Jake found this little tidbit, is that in a 2015 Goldman Sachs study, they estimated that fintech could disrupt $4.7 billion in revenue that traditional financial institutions now make, well, we're making in, in 2015. And a lot of that is because fintech is changing how business is conducted. First thing is it really reinvents customer service. So back in the day, you know, if you needed to deposit a check or you needed to withdraw money or, you know, whatever bank services you may need, you had to go physically to the bank to do all that. But that's not the case anymore. So it's kind of changed how banks have to rethink customer service. It's not just face-to-face. It's also how can we reach our, our customers online now? Another really good example is that you now have 24-7, right? 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you could access your account and move money around and deposit checks. So that was obviously another big change for banks when most people had to go in between, you know, eight to five or nine to five, whatever time your bank was. Banker's hours. Yes. The banker's hours. So, uh, you know, but now it's kind of standard that it's expected. I don't know about you guys, but I almost never do what I need to do during business hours of a bank because I'm working. So mm-hmm. most of what I need to do, you know, it's at like seven o'clock at night or 
at eight o'clock in the morning or something when I'm not working. So that's another really big change. And also it's the thinking of having to think mobile first. And what I mean by that is you need to be able to access, a lot of people access banking services now on their mobile phone or on their computer. So how does it look when you sign in? How does a customer find what they need? Are there help and search functions? All of that type of stuff was new. Now, probably you're, you're probably sitting there listening to this and it's like, yeah, but this is automatic. It's the age of the internet, right? But that wasn't always the case. It's still pretty new in terms of the financial services sector. I actually judge uh, financial services pretty hard if they don't have mobile first mentality when it comes to their user interface. Yeah, absolutely. I was, I was just thinking like, I can't remember the last time I deposited a check where I didn't take a picture of it over my phone and just, you know, snap like the mobile de- check deposit is pretty much how I, I do that all the time now. I can actually, I actually do know the last time I did it because it's probably the only time I've done it in a few years. And it was when uh, my husband and I got married after we went to the bank and we took checks. But part of that was because, you know, there's also people like address the check to what they assumed my married name was and it hasn't hadn't legally changed yet. So how do you deposit that check? So like that type of more complicated things, you still do need to physically go into a bank and have a face-to-face conversation. But otherwise, yeah, Jake, that was usually I just (laughs) deposited. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's having like the brick and mortar branches is definitely still important, but yeah, I, I think most people can relate to doing a lot of their, banking services through a mobile app or online these days, definitely. Or not change their name. (laughs) That was what I did. did Um, So we we talked, I talked a little bit about the disruption of it, of the fintech sector, but Jake, can you kind of chime in about how much the fintech industry has grown? Yeah, definitely. Fintech is probably one of the largest growing industries in the world and definitely the U.S. as well. Uh, According to a KPMG U.S. fintech, or a KPMG study, uh, U.S. fintech companies saw $18.3 billion in investment in 2019. Uh, So there's a lot of money going into the sector. Everybody thinks about Silicon Valley and all of the technology that comes out of there. A lot of that stuff is, is financially driven technology. So it's a huge sector. Fintech globally is expected to have a compound annual growth rate of around 20% for 2020 to 2025 compared to the total financial sector um, that is just everything financial doesn't just include fintech. The total financial sector's compound annual growth rate is expected to be about 6%. So compared to the financial industry in general, fintech is, is growing very rapidly. It's obviously a huge thing. So I think uh, Nikki's going to start off and we're going to start breaking down some of these different fintech products that people are going to use in their, in their day-to-day lives. Yeah. Cause it's definitely not going away as Jake just said. So the first, which we already kind of talked a little bit about um, is mobile banking. So this is obviously a very popular option for most banks and credit unions. The in t- August of 2019. So just a little over a year ago, the Business Insider Intelligence Mobile Banking Competitive Edge Study, there's a, there's a name for a study, <laughs> um, 
89% of respondents said that they use mobile banking and 97% of millennials reported they do. So already, no matter what generation you're in, mobile banking is a huge part of your life by now. But particularly, as we can see, 97% of millennials, my guess is that's just going to go keep getting, you know, that's basically 100% right now. But, you know, as the younger generations start their own banking, I'm sure it'll be online. So what are some of the advantages, advantages of mobile banking? Again, we kind of talked a little bit about this, but the convenience and accessibility. So you can log in anywhere, anytime. That includes for people who are traveling. I mean, pre-COVID times, right? When people would travel. <laughs> um, but, you know, you could access your, your account no matter where you are and at any time. And you could do it via the app or the website, whatever you're more comfortable with. I know for me personally, um, I, I use both. I don't know if Jake and Andrea, what do you guys usually? I use both. Definitely both, yeah. But the app for sure is so nice just to have it with you wherever you go, wherever your phone is. Yeah, I tend to um, do a lot of quick stuff on the app, but like when I'm doing budgeting stuff and I wanna look at all of our different accounts at once, then I go on the website because it's easier to look at, I feel like, multiple accounts at once. And not only is it convenient, but there are a lot of services from your bank that are available online now. Just a, just a few, like we talked about, you can look at your accounts at any time, your balances. You could check balances in all of your accounts, which is nice for when you're trying to figure out where to deposit a check or where to pay a bill from. Review account history, which, like Andrea mentioned, we're going to get into security around fintech, fintech and being able to quickly access your account history to spot any abnormalities is really important. And you can pay bills, which is, you know, everyone's favorite. <laughs> but my favorite thing is that I could set up automatic payments for my bills. So, you know, if I know I have my electric bill or whatever bill it may be, I, I really feel like it helps um, me organize our finances to make sure that there's not any sort of late bills happening. And deposit checks. So those are just a few things. Um, it also has the added bonus of everything being paperless, which is good for the environment. Which Sustainability. Is, yeah. <laughs> which is important as we have seen in the world. <laughs> a few drawbacks. Again, I know we're going to get into this a little bit later, but so people really do worry about the security. And it's a legitimate concern, I think. So, but we'll address later on in the podcast about how you can make sure you are doing everything you can to keep your account safe. Uh, and one thing I, I thought I would mention, and Jake and I definitely had to deal a lot with this in our line of work at the Division of Banking, but during COVID-19 pandemic, mobile banking surged in popularity because a lot of the brick and mortar banks had to close. They didn't have a choice in the matter. So, but people still had to check all their accounts. So, According to Fidelity National Information Services, in April alone of this year, there was a 200% jump in new mobile banking registrations and mobile banking traffic rose by 85%. So, uh, kind of unfathomable if you think about it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, back in, I mean, when 
COVID-19 hit back in March when states started shutting down, if, you, if your branch closed, if I mean, if you were someone who was used to going to a branch for your banking services all the time and that branch closed down, the only way you could access your accounts was, you know, through mobile, mobile banking. And it is one of those things where you think, I know my family has talked throughout this pandemic about how different this pandemic would have looked 20 years ago without as much technology. You know, what would people have done without mobile banking the past six months? As I mean, now a lot, at least in Illinois, I think almost all of the brick and mortar banks are back up. But, you know, that wasn't the case back in March, April, May. So without having that access, it would have made things more difficult. Well, there's also the caveat of people that aren't used to banking online, the learning curve and the stress involved, which during the beginning of the pandemic in particular was already high. So I can imagine that a lot of people struggled with that transition, but we're in a better place now in case something happens again in the future or continues to happen, obviously. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, you know, back in school, they taught us that people used to like keep track of their checking account and like balance their checkbooks. Some people still do. I guess people people would have had to rely on that, but it seems foreign to me. So I, (laughs) I don't know. Because it's just all right there when you pull up your app, right, Jay? <laughs> yeah, I can see everything. I don't have to worry well, about it. Well, if you think about it, there are also things like night drops, right? Instead of depositing on your phone, you'd have to physically go to the brick and mortar location and do a night drop. You, you put your deposit slip and in an envelope with your money or your check, just drop it in the night box. So they would probably have something like that like ramp up some physical stuff that still exists and people still use it. (laughs) Yes, that is true. People do. When I saw those statistics, it really like in my head, I knew, oh, technology is clearly helping us in this pandemic. But those two statistics, I was like, oh, wow. (laughs) That is 200% is a lot in a month. And, you know, it made me think of the banks themselves. Like I'm sure they were also, that's a lot of, you know, like trying to make help all these new customers in a new way and, you know, just have to be nimble and, and adjust. Absolutely. So uh, to transition off of mobile banking for a little bit, I'm going to turn it over to Andrea to talk about digital wallets, which Thank may you. not be as uh, well known of a term as mobile banking. It's very related to mobile banking though. Yeah. So it's easy to think about. So it's likely that most of us have done some online shopping during this pandemic. So you may be familiar with digital wallets, which allow users to connect different payment options to an online service to make transactions quicker and easier. If you save your banking, credit card, or gift card information in a vendor's website, you're likely using a digital wallet. It is saving a payment transaction option um, in a website typically, but digital wallets can also include mobile wallets. Anyone that has a smartphone likely has seen an app on their phone labeled as a wallet. It's usually native in a lot of operating systems. Apple Wallet is native to iOS, obviously. Samsung Pay is for Samsung phones. Google Pay used to be Google Wallet. 
all these are mobile wallets, which are a type of digital wallet, but the terms are not interchangeable. A mobile, a mobile wallet is a type of digital wallet, but not all digital wallets are mobile wallets. So security is one of the biggest things you need to be concerned with with fintech in general. So you, when you choose to use a digital wallet, you'll want to investigate the security features that that particular vendor, if a vendor is using the digital wallet, or uh, application if you're using a mobile wallet, chooses. So you want to see if there's password protection in addition to whatever's on your device. Is there a password for the website or do you have to enter another password to actually make a transaction go through? How is the information encrypted, which we'll talk a little bit more about later. You also want to keep your operating systems up to date, as well as any applications or virus or malware protection. And the, it's important to remember that the more places that you store your financial information, the higher your risk for loss could be. So monitoring your finances using mobile banking or online banking is a great way to protect yourself. Look at how it all connects. It's all connected. All the financial technology is connected. So it's like the digital wallets is the umbrella of types of financial technology type wallets. There's digital wallets and then mobile wallets is a type underneath that. Digital wallets typically save payment transaction information. So it could be a credit card that it saves. It could be your routing an account number that it saves. It could be gift cards that it saves. Some mobile wallets even save things like your air, airline tickets, right? Like in the Apple wallet, you can save your airline tickets. Concert tickets. I know on Ticketmaster. Tickets. So it's, it's basically the digital equivalent of a physical wallet, right? Okay. The mobile wallet has to do with smartphones specifically. You can take it with you. It's mobile. Whereas digital wallets that exist solely in a website right? Originally, PayPal was solely in a website. It didn't have an application because smartphones weren't really a thing. I'm not sure that Blackberries had PayPal. Yeah, I don't think so. I haven't done the history on that. So digital wallets just includes mobile wallets. Um, we wrote an article several years ago about mobile wallets and digital, digital wallets was a component of that, but we had to be explicit about what the differences are because they are not all the same. <laughs> Does that help? I just we go yes, and I just thought we should break it down a little bit more because it's confusing. Yeah. It can be confusing for sure. That makes sense to me though. It's kind of like the difference between like if you log onto your computer and you have your payment information stored on Amazon, that's digital. But <laughs> if I go to the store and I check out with my iPhone or Android, that's mobile. Correct perfect analogy. Since you're great at the analogies, why don't we just move into investing, Jake? That sounds good to me. Um, so yeah, we want to talk a little bit about these retail investment apps that are becoming really popular for people to use. People might have heard of apps like Robinhood or Acorn, which are seeing a huge jump in users uh, since March, specifically because people have time on their hands. Some people throughout this pandemic might have more savings at this time because if, you know, if they're able to work from home and 
they're not out as much, they're not spending as much, they might have a little bit more money that they want to dabble in investments with. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about that. But Nikki and Andrea, I wanted to ask, do you guys use any of these retail investment apps? I will be honest and say I do not. I have, you know, just more of the traditional stuff where it's pulled out of my paycheck, deferred comp, things like that. But yeah, not, I've not dabbled in the investment app world. I do, but I am very hands off. So I use a Roundup app. Acorns is a Roundup app. So I use that. And from my perspective, I really just wanted to get a better idea because I had students coming and asking about like these types of apps. And I was like, I don't know. I really don't know. But you know what? Saving for my future is something that I want to do. I just don't want to think about it a lot. So the Roundup technology helps me not think too hard about setting aside kind of riskier stuff um, because I'm pretty conservative with my retirement planning in general and it gave me an idea of what the experience would be like so I could better correlate education (laughs) to it. I'm glad you guys touched on uh, the retirement stuff because the typically like you know a lot of people will save through work uh, for their retirement or they have you know an, an IRA maybe that they put their savings into for retirement. These are a little different than that. I had never used a retail investment app, but when I knew that we'd cover this topic on this podcast, I actually signed up for Robinhood and bought some stocks. I I put $20 in and uh, I got a free stock just for signing up from an oil company. So to offset that, I invested in some environmentally conscious stocks. And, And so far over the last couple of weeks, I am up about 76 cents. So we're doing really great here. There you That's go. great. Yeah. I have a question for you, Jake. Because ethical investments have become more prominent, have mm-hmm. the did the robo advisors in Robinhood like suggest options for you to offset the oil? They did not. So in Robinhood, there is like you get a little drop down of popular stocks, and there it breaks down stocks by categories. I did just do some Google research on my own of, you know, good environmental stocks to invest in. And and so that's how I found those. But that kind of gives me the point uh, of talking about these retail apps is some of the pros of them for sure is that apps like Robinhood definitely democratize uh, access to the investment market before this, you know, you might have to go to set up account at Charles Schwab or something like that to, to really participate in the retail investment markets or, or day trading as it's sometimes called. But this app is really easy to use. As I said, I mean, I only put $20 in. You don't have to be some big wig. You don't have to put thousands of dollars in to be able to invest your money uh, and, and hopefully watch it grow. But it really, it really makes it very accessible and very easy to use. And you can use just a little bit of money, even if you don't have much, but you still want to play around with some money in the investment market. Uh, you can still do that on apps like Robinhood. And you don't have to have a ton of investment experience either. It's it's pretty easy. There's there are one or two click trades that you can make. You, you just click on the stock that you want to buy and um, how much you want to purchase of that stock. And then you can make the trade right there. Um, so that's one of the big benefits of these is it allows a lot of people to get access to the market, which 
maybe prior to an app like this wasn't really widely available to people before. There are some downsides to it though. Some people think it might be too easy to use. As I talked, you don't have to have a lot of experience, but if you're not very experienced, you might get into some trouble if you're, if you're putting too much of your savings into an app like this. And obviously the retail trading market can be pretty volatile. It, it goes up and down from day to day. Even just my small amount of stocks that I have in Robinhood has gone up and down ever since I've gotten it. So, and, and a lot of the research shows that you're better off uh, investing for the long term and day traders have a hard time beating just the overall market. So if you were to put your money into an index fund that follows, you know, the S&P 500 or something like that, there's a good chance that just letting that money follow the trajectory of the stock market is going to earn you more over the long term than you would trading stocks day to day, week to week, and trying to beat the market that way. There's also been some, some problems with some of the platforms that people use, like platform outages. Is, that's always a danger with technology is if the platform goes down and it's not usable, then you don't have access to your, your account, your funds. That did happen with Robinhood back at the onset of, of the coronavirus. And so when the market was taking a big dip, they had an outage. A lot of people couldn't access their accounts and, and couldn't sell those stocks as they, were, as they were falling rapidly. And another thing to watch out for is I noticed this. They do send you a little notification, but I deposited my funds from my checking account and then made my trades. But, and it lets you know that your funds can be not necessarily locked up, but it does take a few days for the, for the trade to clear. So it asks you not to, to spend those funds. So technically, the $20 that I put in was still available in my checking account before the trade had cleared. I was possible if I could, if I wanted to, I could have double spent that money, you know, or, or I could have accidentally double spent that money and then it wouldn't have been there. It wouldn't have been available for the trade to clear. That's so interesting that they keep it in your bank rather than putting it into like a fund within the app. Mm -hmm. We'll probably cover some of this a little bit later with the way that trades clear and some of the blockchain te technology um, that is looking to disrupt that. Uh, but yeah, trades take a few days to clear before all the funds are allocated to where they need to be. So it's, it's definitely possible to double spend that if you're, if you're not being careful and, and keeping a close eye on it. As I say, I could, I could see how that could get really confusing for people where they're like, oh, here, I have this in my account. And then they find out that they don't. And that's how people kind of get into debt within those apps. Mm -hmm. I know yeah. uh, there was a story about I think a young college man who had hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt on Robinhood. it showed, mm -hmm. you know, so yeah, that's definitely something to, to watch out for. That's another danger is on, on Robinhood specifically um, they allow people to get into some pretty complex trading items in that scenario. The, the younger student, was trading on options, which if you're a novice investor are, are pretty complex financial instruments and can definitely get carried away. What happened to him is he saw a massive negative balance before a trade cleared and, you know, scary. it was, yeah, it was a scary situation. And, and I, I think it's just something that we're not saying don't use these apps, right? Use them. Don't use them. It's up to you, but just make sure that, you know, you're keeping track. So that way, mm -hmm you don't somehow end up owing more money than you want to. Yeah, I don't and want this good. whole thing 
to sound like a horror story. Right. There's definitely benefits, like I said earlier. You know, it's been fun for me to participate in it with just a little extra money. But I think that is important for people to know is these this type of like day trading retail apps, you want to do this with money that you have to quote unquote play around with after you've already taken care of, you know, your emergency savings, your retirement savings, and more secure accounts because this is can can be pretty volatile and can sometimes be can change on a whim. I think it's really great that you pointed out that it takes several days for it to clear. And mm-hmm. it, when we're used to real-time feedback, mm-hmm. that it would be easy to get really stressed out seeing a negative number, not knowing that things could level out in a couple days. And I know yeah. Andrea and Jake, you guys have both mentioned Acorn and like the Roundup apps. Can you guys talk about a little bit what, what does that mean? Like Roundup from what, I guess I should ask. So with with Acorns, and you can also do this with savings, there's savings apps that do the same thing. It tracks your purchases and then rounds up to the nearest dollar and takes that amount and puts it in savings or an investment app. Right. So, so that's what purchases is any, built on. Purchase on anything. Mm-hmm. On anything. Any linked card. And then you have a linked, usually a credit union or bank account, like either savings or checking. And so they'll pull that amount, the seed amount from that. Yeah. So if you're, if you, you know, spent $20 and 42 cents, it would, it would take the remaining 58 cents and then, then put that into a savings or investment account of your choice. Um, Mm -hmm. And there's also, I think a lot of some of the main banking apps, I know on Chase, I have options like that available to me. There's also auto save where you can select once you get a direct deposit if you know your check is coming in twice a month on the same date you can select it to auto save right to your savings account right when that check comes in so you don't ever see the money it just goes straight into your your savings account and and then you don't have to worry about manually taking out of your checking and putting it into your savings yeah and that roundup technology has been around a really long time honestly mm-hmm. it's been around at least 8 years that's mm-hmm. when I first learned about it from a, a savings method capacity, not necessarily investing. But it can build up fast, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Small amounts add up. Yeah. So that's kind of the breakdown on, on these retail trading apps. But I think we're going to toss it back to Nikki to talk about these peer-to-peer apps or P2P, P2P apps that are really, really popular with people right now. Yeah, so a peer-to-peer app or P2P, um, I know before I kind of got into working into this space, I didn't know the official name that this is your PayPal, your Venmo, Apple Pay, Google Pay, Zelle, all that type of anything that really allows you to transfer money back and forth with your family or friends. That's why it's peer-to-peer. This also includes social media, which I wanted to highlight as well, because you you guys have probably seen that you could hook up some of your bank accounts to certain social media websites like Facebook or Twitter to quickly donate to a cause or buy or purchase something off of a social media website. But those hooking it up to social media is a little bit more open to scammers than any of the established peer-to-peer apps that I mentioned before. So peer-to-peer apps, it leads directly to your bank account. 
Um, some, some apps allow you to hook up a credit card as opposed to maybe just directly a debit card or your bank account, but there may be a fee attached with that. So it's something um, you may want to look into. I know uh, my husband and I definitely have some reward credit credit cards. We, we have the Southwest rewards credit card. So we do try to use our credit card to pay off right away, but it's something that there is, there is a fee associated on some of these apps. So we don't use it when we use those apps. So it's just something to keep in mind. And obviously I'm sure most people have used some sort of P2P app, but it allows you to pay friends within minutes, right? Like you're at dinner and I remember <laughs> so many dinners with some of my best girlfriends, right? Like splitting up the check and, and trying to figure out who paid for what and it would be a mess. And now it's like somebody's like, all right, I'll put it on my card and everybody just quick pay me or Zell me or Venmo me or whatever. <laughs> I know I always joke with my, I have a group of friends and we're kind of scattered all over the country. And when we do joint gifts for a friend or something like that, I'm like, you can reach me at PayPal, Venmo, or Chase QuickPay. <laughs> like, I feel like everybody has, has multiple ways to, to do that now. Using these apps, it's really easy, right? Like in Venmo, for example, and PayPal, I just use those as examples for me personally, because those are the two that I use the most. You know, somebody pays you, it sits in your account. You then have to transfer it back to your bank account to be in your general fund, right? You could continue to pay out of your PayPal or Venmo balance, but it's, a, it's that particular balance. It's not in your actual bank account. And if you want to transfer it over, it does take one to three business days to do that. So it's just something to keep in mind that it's not instantaneously in your bank account. It's instantaneously in your app. And then you need to tell it to transfer. The that, exception might be like the P2P functions with your bank, like with Chase. Correct. Mm -hmm. Correct. Like Chase, QuickPay, Zelle, like then it's instant because it's within the bank. But if you're using one of these other apps that is linked to your bank account and is not actually your bank account, it will take time to transfer. So it's just something to keep in mind. So one thing I did want to touch on with these types of apps is that a lot of them, not all of them, but many of them are not insured. Basically what that means is that you don't have the same protections that your bank account has. Your bank account or credit union account, they're, they're FDIC insured, which means if something were to happen to your bank, right? Like it goes under or there's major fraud, your something is stolen directly from your bank account, something like that, you are entitled, they, they will work with you to make sure you get that money back. So if your bank for some reason all of a sudden goes completely under and you had $5,000 in that bank account, it's insured up to $250,000. So the per person on the account. I'm sorry, what was that, Andrea? Per person on the account. So there's two people, it's $500,000. So, um, you will get, like, if your bank just all of a sudden goes belly up, you are going to get your $5,000 back. That is not the case for some of these P2P apps. Obviously, like Andrea said, the ones that are directly affiliated with your bank has the same protections as your bank, like a Chase QuickPay. But 
things like PayPal and Venmo that are separate apps do not have that same security. So if for some reason PayPal goes bankrupt or Venmo goes bankrupt or somebody comes in and wipes your account, you know, hacked and somehow got all your money, it's not the same type of fraud protection or assistance in reclaiming lost funds that is with your bank account. And again, I use PayPal, Venmo, I use them all the time. I'm not saying not to use them, but it's just something to be conscious of because there are people, especially people with small businesses, people who sell things on like Etsy or Craigslist, like any of those types of apps. Sometimes people keep thousands of dollars within their PayPal or Venmo or other payment accounts like that, other P2P accounts. So it is something to keep in mind if you are somebody who tends to hold a lot of money in your P2P app, you may want to be transferring that over to your bank account more frequently yeah. um, just to play mm -hmm. it safe. Yeah, it's just really important to, on any financial account that you use, make sure you're checking out the protections on it and, and the insurance on it as well um, to make sure that your funds are secure because nobody wants to lose their money. And every, every one of these apps are going to have their own type of fraud protection. I'm not saying, hey, it's like a free-for-all. <laughs> it's not what I'm trying to say. <laughs> but it's just something where I think because people think it's linked directly to their bank account, they may know their protections that they have on their bank account. And they think that it carries over whatever, like for me, I bank at Chase. So my PayPal account is hooked up to my Chase account. But that doesn't mean that PayPal has the same protections as Chase does. PayPal will have their own type of protections and fraud pre preventions that you're going to want to make sure you understand while using it. And again, just to bring up the COVID-19 pandemic, this is something I know for small businesses, a lot of them started using some of these like PayPal accounts to do, like I know my, my, uh, my favorite dog food store by me they started doing pickups where you could you know order online and then pick it up and they would actually have you pay via paypal and that was brand new for them and it worked but like for a business like that it's important to make sure that because they're receiving thousands of dollars just to know what their protections are on the pgp app and to make sure that they're transferring their money the larger amount it gets within the app. I just started using Venmo like late last year and it took me a while to realize I needed to take an extra step to do the transfer, that it wasn't gonna be automatic like at the end of the month or whatever. So just remembering to make it a habit to, to do that step, the transfer step is really important to protect your money. And I also know people who do like, some of my friends have their PayPal money as like, this is my fun money. So like it's in there, but they don't keep thousands of dollars in there, right? It's like maybe a hundred dollars <laughs> that they then use to pay friends when they're out for dinner and then, or a gift. And then that's what, when their friends pay them, like it's just the same money, right? That's kind of being recycled, going out and coming back in. And that's something that works for some people to think of it that as like their fun money. I know our boss, Chase Raywinkle, always likes to stress this to people, that they're not insured for 
because he's also heard people who keep like thousands of dollars within their PayPal accounts or Venmo accounts. And it, you know, it's just something that people need to be aware of that you, if you are a business or you're a person that does that to really make sure you're looking at the protections, those apps and that company is giving you. So I am actually going to turn it back over to Jake. He is going to talk about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, which to me, I'm, I won't lie, has been a bit of a question mark and I've been learning a lot about it <laughs> lately. Jake, can you go ahead and kind of explain that fintech for us? Yeah, thanks, Nikki. I, I want to stipulate that I'm by no means an expert coder or you know, an expert in Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies, but it's something that I've done a lot of research on um, for the division. So I think I can break it down, hopefully as simply as possible, but it is a pretty complex topic. But first, we'll just talk about what Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies are. Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies are completely digital currencies. Uh, so a good way to think about this is compare it to the fiat currencies that we currently use day to day for most of the listeners at this pod. That's going to be the U.S. dollar. Maybe we have some international listeners. That'd be pretty great. That might use the euro or something like the Chinese yuan or the Japanese yen. But the difference is with fiat currency, it's backed by government. The government issues those currencies that we either keep in our checking or savings accounts or we keep physically via actual paper money. Cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin are completely digital. They're not backed by government. They're backed by, and this is kind of the complex part, but they're backed by the underlying technology, which is the blockchain. And they're also backed by just the value that people give to them. So Bitcoin, when it first started, really had little to no financial value. Uh, you could get a Bitcoin for pennies. Now, one Bitcoin is worth thousands of thousands of dollars. So that's kind of the basic. They're just a digital currency. You can use them for buying things just like you can for cash, except it's going to be all digital and all online. How do they work? That goes back to the blockchain technology that is underlying for any cryptocurrency, whether it's Bitcoin or Ether, which is on the Ethereum blockchain or any of the other thousands of cryptocurrencies that have been created since Bitcoin first came onto the scene in 2008. What blockchains are, uh, they're also called decentralized ledger technologies, but they're the basis for any cryptocurrency. What they do is they use a decentralized network of nodes or like people who participate in the program, like a computer to confirm transactions across the network. And then they add those transactions to the blockchain simultaneously to compare this to the money that we regularly use like dollars banks or other financial institutions typically perform that role in a centralized way. So when we make a transaction at the grocery store, at the mall, the bank confirms that we have those funds in our account and then they okay that. And then they send it back to the grocery store or wherever we made the purchase on a blockchain. What happens is all of the computers or nodes that are participating in the network have a copy of that ledger. They confirm that the funds are available uh, with every other node in the network. And then once they've confirmed that, they add that transaction to the blockchain, which is secure. You can't go back and change that. And that solves the problem with digital currency and online currencies uh, of double spending. So before this, it was possible, before this blockchain technology became 
prevalent, it was possible for people to technically double spend digital currencies. If there was no one confirming that the funds had already been spent or the funds were available as possible as someone on the internet to say, hey, I'll send you this money. But if there's nobody confirming that that person hasn't already spent that money or that that person actually has that money, there's no way for the receiving person to, to make sure that those funds are going to be available. So that's the problem that blockchains or decentralized ledger technologies solve. And the person we can thank for that or persons uh, is Satoshi Nakamoto, who created Bitcoin in 2008 and also created the blockchain technology. So I know that is a lot. Uh, Nikki, Andrea, do you have any questions on that? It was a lot. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. This is still, it's confusing for me. So I feel like I'm sure it's confusing for everybody still out there, unless you're kind of in that space. Because to me, this is the newest form of fintech, really. Like it's, I know it's been around now for a few years, but it's still not as ingrained in society the yeah. way that I think other fintech has, has been. It's not as prevalently used like we use other types of fintechs in our day-to-day -day lives. I would, I'm going to go ahead and guess that most of our listeners or just most people in general aren't conducting their day-to-day -day transactions with Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency. You know, you don't go to the store and say, I'll pay for my groceries with 0 0.005 Bitcoins or whatever it is. Um, that's not really, I think despite what the creators of, of Bitcoin and, and cryptocurrencies had envisioned, people aren't really using it in their day-to-day -day transactions like we still use with our government-backed fiat currencies. But they are usable for that. There are some online retailers or other stores or institutions that accept Bitcoin for payments. There was somebody who bought a house a few years ago in Bitcoin Wow, uh, I didn't know that. Yeah, there, there are online retailers that uh, will accept Bitcoin for payments, but typically when that happens, those people still take that Bitcoin and then immediately transfer it back to dollars. Um, because as we'll talk about here with Bitcoin, especially the value, the underlying value of, of the Bitcoin is, is very volatile. So you can still use these cryptocurrencies to buy goods and services if the person selling them to you will accept that. If they don't, then you're going to have to use your government-backed fiat currencies. But one of the, probably when most people think of Bitcoin, they probably think of it almost like a stock where people trade it or buy and sell it and, and try to make a profit because, you know, as we've seen, the value of Bitcoin has, has risen dramatically in the last, you know, five years. I remember the first time I heard about Bitcoin was in college back in around 2009, 2010. So just a couple of years after it was created and a, a couple of my engineering friends we're talking about this Bitcoin thing and they were talking about they were going to mine some Bitcoin and do all this stuff. I had no idea what it meant. I was a history major. So I was like, this is, this is way over my head. My uh, husband had said that to me too. He was like mining for Bitcoin. And I was like, like Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs mining. Like, I don't understand what this means. <laughs> sorry. Yeah. I should touch on that as well. So for those who've heard about mining Bitcoin, what that means is any node that participates in the network is mining. The way Bitcoin specifically works is it has this proof of work mechanism that allows a node in the network to add a transaction to the blockchain. But to add that transaction, the computer has to solve a complex mathematical problem that requires quite a bit of computing power. So that's what the people mean by mining is that their computer is using its computing power to 
solve this equation. And then once it does solve it, it adds a block to the blockchain and they're rewarded with Bitcoins. So that's one way to earn Bitcoins. The first block that was added to the blockchain by the creators was awarded 50 Bitcoins, which is a lot of money now, but back then it was almost nothing. So you can't cash out your Bitcoin the same way that like you can cash out a stock, let's say. You kind of can. There are Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies like trading markets similar to like a stock market. Uh, one of the most popular ones is Coinbase where you can buy and sell cryptocurrencies uh, pretty quickly. But it's like with stocks, trades take time to clear. So you can cash in and out, but it is risky investing and things like that because the price of Bitcoin can change 10, 12% in you know, a month or a single year. And you know our fiat money does that too. Dollars do change in value, inflation and deflation, but we can pretty confidently say that our dollar in January of 2020 is gonna be able to buy about the same amount of things as a dollar in December of 2020. With Bitcoin, you just don't know that. So that's one of the risks involved with buying and trade, buying and, and selling Bitcoin. It's also not really set a law yet if with Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies specifically, the securities and exchange commission, which is a US regulator, uh, hasn't taken a definitive stance and labeled these cryptocurrencies as securities like they do with other stocks that you might trade on, on an app like Robinhood. So it's there's not a ton of regulation in that trading market right now. It can be risky to do that, but I think one of the things that has most people excited about cryptocurrencies is, is really this underlying technology, the blockchain that we've been talking about and some of its applications that it might be used in other parts of financial technology. We talked earlier about with Robinhood about how it takes one to three days to settle trades in the stock market. Theoretically, if you use a blockchain for that, you could settle that trade in minutes versus days. And then my funds that I deposited from my checking account would have been available like that. It, it would have been almost instantaneous because since the blockchain doesn't go through a centralized network, it doesn't go through a bank and then have to go back out and do all these checks and balances. All the computers do it simultaneously. It, it's very fast at settling trades. It can also theoretically be used for faster and cheaper remittances. So sending money internationally can be a pretty complex process for people. There are blockchains seeking to allow people to do that for much, much cheaper and a lot faster than, than your normal ways. And, and another pretty interesting theoretical use of blockchains is expanding access to unbanked areas. And that's kind of with a lot of financial technologies is like with mobile banking, you know, it can, it can get banking access into areas where there might, act, might not actually be physical banks. Blockchains can do that too. And it can allow people to have maybe a digital currency rather than a government-backed currency in areas where the government-backed currency isn't stable. We think of the dollar is very stable, but there are other, other government-backed currencies that have experienced hyperinflation in the past. And that's obviously not a fun scenario to be in if you live in a country that's experiencing high amounts of inflation and, and your, the value of your currency is going down like that rapidly. With the risks of, of Bitcoin, I don't know if this is as prevalent now, but when Bitcoin was first gaining traction, you heard about Bitcoin banks just dissolving overnight. Is that as prevalent now with blockchain being used along with it or? I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that. Sorry, I, I'm not sure I, I know what you mean by Bitcoin banks. 
obviously I don't understand the technology as well as, as you do, Jake, but in like 2012, 2015, mm. you would hear about online Bitcoin banks that existed okay. internationally yeah. that would dissolve overnight and then mm. people lost all their Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah. So that is another risk. The transactions and the history of the transactions themselves are very secure on a blockchain. It's very hard for someone to go back and change the transactions because they would have to, it's almost theoretically impossible for someone to change the data that's in the blockchain. But when people store their Bitcoins in a mobile wallet, which is essentially where people store them, those are susceptible to hacks. So one of the most famous ones was uh, Mt. Gox, which was a Bitcoin trading platform in Japan. And in 2014, there was a massive hack of all the accounts on that. And hundreds of millions of dollars of Bitcoins were lost to the people who hacked them. So if you were holding Bitcoin on Mt. Gox in 2014, you lost all of it, essentially. So that's one of the dangers. Definitely the storage of your Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency is, is a risk as with any other mobile wallet. But the technology of storing the transactions itself, the blockchain is very secure. So a lot of times you'll hear people talk about how cryptocurrencies are very secure. That's what they mean. The mobile wallets are still secure insofar as that you have good passwords, but their platforms are susceptible to being hacked just like any other. So you just want to make sure the company you're using has good technological security in place. And I think it's really interesting that a lot of this isn't being regulated yet because, you know, we're, we're so used to, to banking and things like that being heavily regulated and protected and cons different consumer protections in place and things like that, that I think it'll be very interesting to see in the next few years what happens at both the federal and state level with different laws around Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and, and things like that. Yeah, that's a really great point, Nikki. As I touched on earlier, you know, the SEC hasn't taken a definitive stance on whether cryptocurrencies are securities that are, you know, tradable. And the federal government in the United States, at least, hasn't taken really any definitive stance towards regulation to regulate these types of currencies like they do with fiat currencies or banking regulators, you know, banks in the U.S. have all sorts of regulators. There's the OCC, the FDIC, um, the Federal Reserve Banks that regulate these entities. Cryptocurrencies don't have that because by nature, they were created to kind of go around governments and make that centralized authority unnecessary. But there are laws that are coming out. Here in Illinois, there's two pieces of legislation specifically that have been passed regarding blockchain. One is the Blockchain Technology Act, which recognizes the legality of blockchains as ledgers, especially in court proceedings. So if someone used a blockchain to, go to you know, make a transaction, um, it's recognized legally in court now in most instances. There are still certain scenarios that require written contracts, but that act did recognize the legality of blockchains in, in Illinois courts. There's also the business develop Blockchain Business Development Act, which was passed in Illinois back in 2018. And what this act does is it provides that the Secretary of State shall recommend legislation, uh, including uniform laws that are necessary to support the use of possible blockchain technology for public records um, and other items. So, and it also provides for the blockchain banking study, which Nikki, our division is doing, 
um, and is due by the end of the year. So that's kind of why I know a lot about this is because I've been working on this study for the blockchain, the Blockchain Business Development Act. Yes, and I'm just going to put a plug in for Jake himself because he's been working really hard on this. And if you watch the IDFPR Facebook page and things like that, he is in in the process of organizing several roundtables that bring experts on Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies on a variety of different topics over the next few months. So just yeah, put, if, put a little plug in there for you, Jake. If, yeah, if this financial stuff and, and cryptocurrencies is something that really interests you, uh, keep an eye out on the IDFPR social media accounts because we will have these fintech roundtables with experts who know a great deal more than myself giving information on this subject. So, But there's other, there's other initiatives on, on blockchains that I should probably touch on as well. One of the, one of the big ones that is, has a lot of people talking in the regulator industry is what's happening in Wyoming in regard to blockchains. Wyoming has passed a bunch of legislation surrounding this. And one of the big ones is they're creating these things called special purpose depository institutions that would allow a bank, like a traditional bank, to act as a custodian and hold people's cryptocurrencies for them. And so it kind of establishes a banking relationship with this industry that is kind of unbanked right now because cryptocurrencies typically you can't go deposit your bitcoin into your chase account so these kind of these special purpose depository institutions solve that problem but just i should point out they're not going to be used for the average person they're going to be used for institutions to deposit very large amounts of of cryptocurrencies but that is something that has people excited new york has also passed legislation to regulate cryptocurrency businesses more traditionally and more like we typically think of re- regulation for banks. It's it's out of the New York Department of Financial Services, but it's called the Bit License, and it really does seek to regulate these cryptocurrency businesses in a similar fashion to the way banks are regulated. So you know, it it requires examinations. It requires these businesses to make notices and inform their customers. It has some consumer protections in it, which is all good stuff. But those are two main pieces of legislation that I would highlight on on the blockchain stuff and sorry that might be getting in too much into the weeds here i know we're going a little long on blockchain but it is a complicated issue yeah i think that sorry go ahead no no no, i just say yes it's complicated (laughs) when your report comes out at the end of the year it would probably be good to do a follow-up podcast just on cryptocurrency i'd be happy to come back and talk about my report so if you guys want it yeah, I do. Because I think I'm going to need to hear this multiple times to actually get it in depth. Yeah, yeah we, can, we can really get in the weeds there. Right. If <laughs> listeners are a little confused right now, don't worry. So are Andrea and I. Yeah, absolutely. But we're working on it. <laughs> well, I'll leave it at that for now. We can put it a pin in the, in the cryptocurrencies and blockchain stuff for now. Um, I think Nikki's going to talk a little bit about consumer protection surrounding all this financial technology, because that's a really important part of this as well. Yeah, so I'm going to talk a little bit about, in general, some problems that have come up with consumer protection concerning fintech. And I know Andrew is going to follow me up with um, specifics on how people can can kind of try to keep their accounts safe. So as this fintech has grown, obviously different problems have also come up, which is it's natural with this type of technology. Probably what people are most used to hearing in the news is about large scale data breaches 
within the fintech space. So for example, just a few, right? Like, cause I'm sure everybody right now is thinking of their own story that they have heard. But in 2017, Equifax had 143 million US accounts and 400,000 UK accounts hacked. And that included everything from people's social security numbers to driver's license to date of birth, everything. Target experienced a data breach in 2013 that exposed credit card information and personal data of more than 110 million customers. I remember that one vividly because I really do like Target. <laughs> um, and recently, just in March of 2020, so this one, I, I remember it being on the news, but you know, March, there was a lot going on <laughs> in March of 2020 that I, I don't think it, it is at the forefront of a lot of people's minds, but the Marriott Hotels announced that 5.2 million guest records, including their names, addresses, and contact details, was compromised, were compromised. I completely forgot about the Marriott one. I know. That's because there was a lot going on in 2020. <laughs> yeah, I don't um, think that was on the top of uh, people's news, news feeds. Yeah, exactly. So I definitely got emails about it. But yeah. <laughs> So all this stuff, right, this is where consumer protection is really important. And it also falls part of that on the businesses, what happens when a breach happens. Because a lot of times this isn't going to be if a breach happens. I mean, we, we want to think that if a breach happens, but it's going to be when. There's, it's really hard because technology is always changing, because hackers are getting better at what they do as well, that, that there is always a risk to put this type of information online. So businesses should, are expected to have a swift and effective response. The FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, actually has a guide for businesses on their website that kind of highlights what business owners, what they need to do, including contacting legal counsel, law enforcement, and the affected businesses and individuals. Currently, all 50 states have laws on the books that require private and governmental entities to notify individuals of security breaches. Anything that involves personal information, it is written into to state laws that people need to be notified. It's also really important that businesses work quickly to figure out the vulnerabilities in their fintech product. Where did the hack happen? And there's expertise now in all of these areas for people who work in the technology field to be able to test and find vulnerabilities in fintech. And businesses, you know, it could cost them millions and millions of dollars to try to fix a breach and then settle with different consumers. And we, we talked about this when Jake was talking about cryptocurrency, that laws are going to, as more regulation comes out, consumer protection laws will also start to shape more around fintech at both the state and federal level to address new concerns as they happen, right? Like 15 years ago, you know, maybe more than that, 20, 25 years ago, you know, the, these large scale security data breaches wasn't on anybody's radar because people weren't putting that much of their personal information online. So the laws and the consumer protection aspects are constantly evolving. The CFPB, the Consumer Protection Financial Consumer Financial Bureau. Financial Protection Bureau. Thank you. You're 
they have a ton of resources on there too about how to keep yourself safe. And then also when there are large scale data breaches, what people, they, they usually put out consumer protection guides to that breach to like, like I know, for example, when Equifax happened, there was a whole guide on there about how you could check to make sure to see if you were affected and what steps to take if you were affected, things of that nature. It's also, I know I just talked a lot about like businesses and what happens if there is a breach, but part of that onus is on the consumer in terms of making sure that they are checking their accounts and keeping them as secure as possible. And so I'm going to turn that over to Andrea to talk about. I have a, a couple follow-up comments about some of the prevalence of data breaches. I have a friend who studies data breaches, and he actually said that the data breaches that we hear about now, they've always been happening. It's just that people are more ethical, businesses are more ethical about sharing when there's been a breach, and it's more of an industry shift to share when, when those breaches happen? Because have either of you heard of ransomware? Yes. Uh, yeah, I've heard of it. But. So it's a type of malware that usually targets businesses, sometimes hospitals. And what the hackers will do is they'll put this ransomware on your computer and it holds all your data at ransom and, and they demand that you pay them or provide information in order for them to release the ransom, the, the ransomed data, right? So that's one method that historically, apparently, data breach hackers have just done the data breach and then said, hey, we won't tell everyone that we did this data breach if you pay, if the business pays the hacker money. Right now there's actually like malware that does it. So I thought that was a little interesting little tidbit. And as far as like the legislation, the FTC calls it the red flags rule for anyone that works in banking, they have to do annual red flag rules training. I have to do it being part of the billing office for the university. So that might be something you're more familiar with is the red flag rules training if you, if you work in financial services at all. So let's talk about how to protect our money and our information and why it's important. Let's talk about phishing first, right? One of the most susceptible ways of getting people's information is phishing. Phishing is a type of social engineering where typically there is a person behind the phishing attempt trying to engineer information or access out of another person. Phishing is usually used as a catch-all for all types of actions related to fraudulent activity that people do to try to obtain usually sensitive information. Have any other of you heard of farming? PH farming? I was gonna say this is also phishing, PH phishing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. I haven't heard of more, I'm more familiar with phishing, but I have heard of farming as, as well. So farming involves malware or malicious code on your machine. Have you heard of vishing with a V? That one is new to me. Yeah, I've not. So it's a specific type of phishing where they use a telephone to try to get information out of you. So you get all those spam calls where they're trying to get your, you know, credit card number or your social security number. That's pretty frequent. 
or demanding information or you're going to get deported. That happens a lot with our international students, but usually it's a phone call. Uh, I get those about, over, I was going to say, I get those even over text now. Yeah. 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 It's crazy. Yeah. The ones um, that ask you to track your FedEx package or something. Do you know there's a specific term for that? Is it? I don't know. The, I don't know. The smishing. Term. It's smishing. Smishing. SMS sishing. Really? Yeah. Text phishing is smishing. Yeah. I've been getting a ton of those lately. Those yeah. UPS ones. I've been, they've been ramping up, except they call me something like Prado, and I'm like, that's not my name. Clearly, this is a yes, smishing if attempt. If you're not expecting a UPS or FedEx package and you get a text about one, do not click on the link. Please don't. And then I'm sure you guys have heard of spear phishing or whaling. I have not. No? I, only like in terms of like on a boat. Okay. It's still fishing with pH. Um, Spearfishing or whaling is when a specific person is targeted, usually like a CEO or like an administrator for someone high up in a company, someone that has lots of access to data, typically, or like really important information for a company or an organization. And the messages are very carefully crafted to reach that person specifically. And sometimes it's like, it appears like it's from a VIP of the company and needing something in a hurry, right? So that they call it spear phishing or whaling because it's a big data breach that they're trying to get. And it's through social engineering. I don't think I knew there was this many tools for trying yeah. to steal our information and I our money. Either. I find social engineering just fascinating that we can put it in so many different categories, but generally people refer to it as phishing with pH, but they are very specific methods of doing it. All right. So obviously staying vigilant is one of the best ways to protect yourself from phishing attempts or data breaches, right? In particular, you also want to keep your operating systems and apps and virus or malware protection updated, like I said before when we were talking about online banking and using mobile wallets or digital wallets, and even with investment apps, any type of app or you know software that has access to your financial information, you want to give it as much protection as possible. Something to note, though, is that biometric data, like your fingerprint or face ID, is not legally protected. Like, obviously, you're the only one with your fingerprint, but someone could take that information from, like, if you are part of a database that can be accessed online, they could take your fingerprint. There's also been instances where face ID can be hacked with a picture of you. So it's important if you are using those features, like I use a fingerprint ID, that you also consider using a password that cannot be just used with biometric data. Uh, if you really want good protection on your financial information. The other thing is to look for tools and services that encrypt your data. So I asked my husband who is uh, studying cybersecurity how to explain data encryption. So we're gonna try it. <laughs> uh, data encryption is a process 
that scrambles your information and it can only be decrypted or readable if you have the key. So that is one of the easiest way to describe encryption. There are different levels of encryption and there's new encryption methods that come out all the time. I don't think it's important to be an expert in encryption. I'm not an expert in encryption, but knowing that encryption exists in the apps that you're using or the financial technology that you're using is really important to make sure that you have as much protection as is possible, right? So those were some of the big things. Obviously, monitoring your accounts is really important, which we've already talked about, and that's important for expense tracking anyway. But what about if something does happen in your financial information or your personal information, which can still lead to financial debt, if it's not taken care of, is stolen? If you do find your victim, you wanna act very fast. You want to record everything related to the issue and keep it very safe. You want to place an initial fraud alert on your credit reports, if applicable, obviously. Like if it's related to Bitcoin, it might not be <laughs> related to your, your credit reports. You also want to order your credit reports, like through annualcreditreport.com. That's the only place to get all three of your credit reports for free at least once per year, but I believe now, right now during the pandemic, it's every week you can pull your credit reports. You can also consider creating an identity theft report if you are a victim. As we've kind of noted, there's a lot of things to do when it comes to protecting your finances. And Jake, do you wanna talk a little bit about regulation challenges? Yeah, uh, there was one thing I wanted to add to what you were talking about, Andrea, is another kind of extra measure of security that I've heard about is two-step verification. And a lot of apps or your financial accounts or even just your basic day-to-day -day accounts on different websites have this option available or some things you use might require it already. I know for Nikki and I, whenever we log into, we've been working from home, but whenever we log into our state of Illinois work emails on our computers, we have to put in our email and our password and then it asks for another thing of verification and the system will text us a code to our phones and then we have to go and put that code in. That's two-step verification is when- I completely forgot about two-factor authentication and I have to do it all the time. Yeah, it's, it's becoming more prevalent, but I think, I think most cybersecurity experts will say that not enough people use it and you might think it's a pain, but it doesn't take long to do. And it can really provide that extra level of security to make sure all your accounts are protected. So I did want to add that. Thank you. And everyone in the University of Illinois system has to use two-factor authentication for like making changes to benefits, if accessing any university applications online, accessing mm -hmm. registration, obviously making changes to how to pay your tuition. So yeah. like we use it everywhere and it is forced in a lot of places. I think it will become like mandated across mm -hmm. industries. Yeah. I think it's going to become very widespread because it's from what I know about it, it's, it makes things very secure because it's very difficult to get past that second step process for hackers if they don't have Absolutely. the actual individual's device that they would have that verification ran through. But I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the challenges or difficulties that regulators are facing 
in, re, in regard to all of this financial technology, uh, Mickey was talking about the CFPB earlier. I wanted to point out, you know, the CFPB was only created in 2010. So, you know, they're even a relatively new agency. Sometimes regulation can be a little reactive. So things, bad things might happen first before we have laws that prevent those bad things from happening in the future. But with FinTech specifically, there's not a lot of cohesion among our federal or state regulators. In general, there isn't really a a federal regulatory framework for all fintech companies like there is for banks or credit unions. And that's probably because fintech companies are very different. Fintech is a very wide, broad umbrella term, but under fintech stuff, you can have stuff like cryptocurrencies or you can have stuff like payment apps like Venmo or PayPal or even just mobile banking. And all of those things are very different. So there's no one size fits all for for regulations on this. So that's been difficult. That's been a challenge for regulators to try and figure out what hat best fits these different types of companies as far as regulations. And different states may require different things. You know, the regulations in Illinois are going to be different from the regulations in California, are going to be different from the regulations in Georgia or Texas or Florida. So it changes on the state level too, which can be somewhat burdensome for some of these companies as they're starting up and they're trying to navigate all of these kind of complex regulations that they might have to be licensed for. For example, if you're a payment company and in certain states, you might have to be licensed as a money transmitter. If you're a company like Quicken Loans that has Rocket Mortgage, which allows people to get a mortgage through an app on their phone, um, you might have to have certain licenses surrounding mortgage laws in, in certain states. So it's an evolving regulatory process for a lot of these companies as financial technology is evolving. Regulators are trying to evolve with it, but it's a complex process. And I know that there's been a lot of talks within the regulatory industry about this specific subject, about how we can get a more cohesive regulatory framework for these new types of financial technologies. But to date, there is not one fintech regulation. Congress hasn't passed the fintech regulation bill yet. So we're still working on that one. There are popular ideas that are coming out. One of them is called a FinTech Sandbox, which is a program that has started in Arizona. There's also one in the United Kingdom. Wyoming also has one alongside the other cryptocurrency legislation that we talked about earlier. But a sandbox is kind of, the name is kind of what it sounds like. It allows these companies to start and operate without having to face all of the regulations that might come with it. They're still being monitored by the by the regulators, but they might not have to be licensed in a specific way. And it, it allows kind of regulators to monitor these things, but also the companies to get in early and see if they'll work without all of the regulations that they might have otherwise had to go through. The flip side of that is that when companies are in these sandbox, there's very likely not to be as many consumer protections as there would be if they had to go through a full licensing process. So those sandboxes are kind of up for debate, but those are things that are happening in certain parts of the country and in the world that I wanted to highlight. But there's not a general consensus among the regulatory community on those just yet, but they are things that are happening right now. It's a very interesting way to like research FinTech generally, right? With a pilot program. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like a pilot program. That's maybe a better term to describe it as well, but I get sandbox though. It's very like securities, Mm -hmm. IT related using sandboxes. Yeah. Yeah. But like I said, it should point out for people, if, if you want to work with a company or, you know, 
give your funds to a company that's in a financial sandbox, we should point out that there's likely not as many consumer regulations in place for those type of companies because they're still figuring it out as well. Absolutely. So clearly, we had a lot to say on financial technology. It's still continuing to expand and grow and produce new solutions to problems that consumers face, as well as challenges, especially for regulators that aren't sure how to address it. We just talked about a few examples, and hopefully we'll follow up with Jake when he's done with his report. Yeah, I'm happy to follow up uh, on whatever the report releases uh, when we do release it later this year. I'm glad you guys had me on today. I uh, just think we should encourage people to stay up to date on all of this stuff. As we've talked about, financial technologies are constantly evolving. So you want to make sure to stay up to date, specifically with your own accounts, and make sure you know what mobile banking changes are being made to your bank account or what changes are being made with all the financial technology that you're using. Uh, and you also want to make sure you're also being extra careful with your passwords, like Andrea talked about, maybe enabling two-step verification is a good move for you if you want that extra level of security. Um, but as always, you want to make sure your passwords are strong. You don't want password one, two, three, four for your, for your bank account. That's probably not a good one. You want something a little stronger than that uh, to make sure that you're secure and make sure you're changing your passwords frequently. They're not frequently, but at least somewhat frequently. So they're not the same for 10 years and that makes you easier to hack. And we just wanted to, to thank all of you guys for joining to us today. Um, please make sure to subscribe to Making Sense of Money on Apple Podcasts or Google Play so you never miss an episode. Coming up in the next month or so, we are going within the next month, not like a month from now. <laughs> Sorry. We are going to focus the next few episodes on spotlighting some issues around the racial wealth gap. And you won't want to miss it. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.